Good morning, I am Michelle and the script, I'm the scripture reader this morning. Our passage today is taken from Esther chapter 8, verses 1 to 8 and 13 to 17. Verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Thank you, Michelle, for the reading of God's word. Before I invite um, our brother Joe to come and preach to us, we will suggest that there are three ways to follow along uh, as, a, as a sermon message is uh, preached. First is to have your Bible open, open to the passage, and um, so that you can follow along the verses as, being, as the sermon is being expounded. Second is to follow the outline of the sermon so that you have a structure of the message in your mind that will help you in your recall. And third is to pray. Pray both for yourself as well as for the speaker that God will speak to your hearts through the message. Let's come to God now in a time of prayer. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word, your very precious word, Lord, and that when we, when we read it, we are encountering you, the living God. And Father, I pray that as we sit under your word, that would you humble each one of our hearts, Lord. And Father, would you remind us of the joy of your salvation in Jesus Christ, Lord. And so, Father, we entrust this time to our hands. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The American baseball legend Yogi Berra 
was famous for his memorable pithy phrases known as yogi-isms, and among which perhaps his most well-known phrase is the slogan, it ain't over till it's over. Barra said this in response to a reporter in July 1973 when he was managing the New York Mets. At a point of time, the team was plagued with injuries and all seemed hopeless when they found themselves at the bottom of their division midway through the season. However, things began to take a turn when the key players returned from their injuries. The team managed to pull off a late surge to the end of the season to win the National League East Division. And eventually, they went on to win the National League Championship Series against the Cincinnati Reds, who were the clear favorites at a point of time. Yogi Berra believed in what he said, and he proved that when his team won the National League pennant in 1973. It ain't over till it's over. And this phrase adequately captures the situation in Esther chapter 8, which is our passage this morning. Last week, our brother, or I should say, a ruling elder-elect, Joseph, <laughs> preached a brilliant sermon that examines how human agency intersects with divine sovereignty in the narrative. Remember that Haman's plans were foiled when he was caught by King Ahasuerus in a compromising position. And shortly after, the king ordered for Haman to be hung on his own gallows. What is portrayed here is true poetic justice. Now, at the conclusion of last week's sermon, you might think that danger is no longer present for the Jews. Yet, yet as we'll see in our passage this morning, God's people are still not out of the woods. The death sentence against the Jews still holds and it is approaching fast, really fast. Much is still hanging in the balance. And the question that still begs for an answer is this. Will Esther succeed in leading her people to safety? Or will her efforts thus far be completely wasted? And as we walk through the passage, we'll realize that in order for the Jews to attain safety, a complete reversal is still required. And this involves resisting their enemies before they're able to rejoice in triumphant celebration. So these are the three points, reversal, resistance, and rejoicing. So let's go to our first point, reversal. Now at the beginning of chapter 8, the author seems to paint a very positive picture of the situation. Verse 1 tells us that Haman, the traitor and enemy of the Jews, was defeated. And at first glance, it appears that God's people are safe and we can finally breathe a sigh of relief. And to round off a resounding defeat, we're told that Haman's house was given to Queen Esther and in turn, she gave it to Mordecai in verse 2. Now, in those times, it was not unusual for the king to retain the property of a traitor. But in this case, the king gave Haman's property to Queen Esther. And perhaps he was doing so to make up for the evil that Haman had intended against her. And also, for the very first time, Esther actually reveals how she's related to Mordecai, to the king, the very same person who saved the king's life from assassination was the queen's cousin. 
And upon knowing this, King Ahasuerus decided to promote Mordecai to be the vizier. Verse 2 tells us that the king took the signet ring that once belonged to Haman and he gave it to Mordecai. So Mordecai right now is a figure of authority. So, so far, so good. However, things are not as it seems. Esther remembered that danger was still lurking for God's people. Now, why is that? It is because the decree to exterminate the Jews was still hanging over their heads, even though Haman has already met his doom in the previous chapter. And what is even more distressing is the fact that Persian edicts from the king were irrevocable. The king couldn't simply say, oh, let's just forget about the first decree and let's just move on from here. The king himself was bound to the laws of the Medes and the Persians. There was simply no way that the first edict could be dropped just like that. And this was a very serious problem for Esther and Mordecai. It's a problem because they cannot simply get the king to remove Haman's edict. And furthermore, if Esther was only concerned with Haman meeting his just desserts and making sure that Mordecai was politically successful, then this would have been the end of the story. But lo and behold, this wasn't the case. She was not just preoccupied with her own self-interest, but rather she was intimately concerned with the lives of her people. It wasn't enough for her if all of this meant the destruction of her people. So, what did Esther do in a time like this? She decided to intercede for her people. The author of the book provides a very vivid description of how she did it. Look with me at verse 3. It says that she fell at the king's feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite. And on top of that, notice the words that she used to plead with the king in verse 5. If it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Now, did you notice Esther's posture and her rhetoric here was, is very, very different from how she was previously. Now, in the past few chapters, what we saw is that Esther was relatively calm and she was a composed person in terms of how she spoke. She was shrewd in her words and in her actions, just like a chess master outmaneuvering her opponents by being a few steps ahead. By contrast, what we have here in chapter 8 is something very different. Esther is portrayed as a total mess. She is resorting to hyperbole to appeal to the king. And it's not difficult to understand her desperation because she knows that the death edict is still in force right at this moment and her people's lives remain in danger. She knows that clever words will not get her anywhere in this situation. So instead, she is now laying aside her royal dignity 
as the queen, she is begging and she is crying out for mercy as a commoner would. The lives of her people are at stake. And you can hear her anguish with what she says in verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Esther recognized that a complete reversal of the edict was still needed before her people is saved. And this is the very same question that we hear from another Jew hundreds of years later. When the Apostle Paul was converted at the Damascus Road, he didn't say, okay, now that I'm saved, I don't need to care about my fellow Jews. But rather what we see with Paul is that he was deeply concerned with the salvation of his people. And you can hear this very same anguish when he speaks in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 to 3. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, no doubt, Paul knew that nothing less than a complete change of heart is needed for one to be saved. And he knew that God was absolutely sovereign over one's salvation. But this did not keep Paul from weeping over the state of his unsaved kinsmen. Brothers and sisters, do we have this same anguish over the lost? Now, as people who passionately believe in the gospel doctrines of grace, as people who believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, how can we be called and aloof towards evangelism? If we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to avoid the coming judgment, then how can we not be concerned with sharing the gospel to those who have not believed? Yes, we trust in God's sovereignty. But as we heard last week, this does not remove the urgency of the message and the need for people to repent and believe in the gospel. So at the end of the day, can we really afford to just come to church you know, every Sunday just so that we can just hang out and have a good time together? What about the impending judgment that is coming at the end of history? Where is the pleading and where is the crying out for mercy before our king? The very king who holds the lives of everyone in his hands. And perhaps in this regard, there is much that we can learn from Esther. So, this was Esther's desperate plea to the king for her people. Did she succeed in her intercession? Yes, but perhaps not quite in the manner that she was expecting. Rather than a mere overturn of the initial edict, a different suggestion was offered to her. And this involves the Jews resisting their enemies. And this brings us to our second point on resistance. Now, King Ahasuerus, he knew that Haman's edict could not simply be overturned. So instead, he proposed something else. Look with me at verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring 
for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, did you hear what the king just said? He has proposed writing a new edict, and this new edict would bear the authority of the king himself, and what it does is that it basically contradicts the earlier edict. And there's a sense of irony here because according to the laws of the land, this new edict itself cannot be revoked. And to top it off, King Ahasuerus, he gave Mordecai and Esther the permission to write anything they wish with regards to this new edict. Now talk about writing a blank check here. And what is fascinating as you read the account is this, that the king himself was once manipulated by his former top official to write an edict of death. And now he is encouraging his new top official to send out an edict that he would have no control over. It's as if the king has no concern for the lives of the people at all. Esther and Mordecai can just write whatever they want and he really couldn't care less. And if you think about it, this is actually rather silly if you think about it, and perhaps even funny. Yet I think this is probably the whole point, that we are meant to see just how ludicrous this whole situation actually is. Nevertheless, as silly as this sounds, it does demonstrate something. It tells us that Esther has succeeded in her intercession. And here I think the author is intentionally drawing a parallel between Haman and Esther. You see, back in Esther chapter 7, Haman fell down before Esther, but he was only concerned with pleading for his own life. And here in Esther chapter 8, we see the queen falling down before the king, but she was not concerned with pleading for her own life. She was pleading for the lives of her people. And so in the end, what happens is that Haman failed while Esther succeeded. And with this, with this new edict, verse 9 tells us that the king's scribes were gathered on the third month to write this edict. Now, what is this new edict? Let's look at verses 11 to 12. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, when we read this for the first time, the contents might seem pretty shocking to us, actually. But let us unpack this decree a little bit and read this in context so that we may understand it a little better. First thing to note is this. Notice that the new, this new decree actually sounds a lot like Haman's decree. There are three infinitives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate here in verse 11. And back in Esther chapter 3, verse 13, we hear the very same words in Haman's decree. And this is what it says. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. So there's a deliberate 
echo of the original decree. And what it does is that it highlights the parallel nature of both edicts. Now, what's the point in the offer, you know, in doing all of this? Well, there's a principle at play behind this that can help us to understand, which is the so-called eye-for-eye principle. And this principle is captured in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 15, with these familiar words. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And what we have with this principle is that it's not about taking unlimited vengeance against an enemy. And unfortunately, this is what we are prone to as sinners, that when we say that we want to get even with somebody who has hurt us, what it often entails is doing a lot more than just getting even. But rather, what we have in this principle is that it ensures that the punishment fits the crime. It ensures that justice is perfectly executed. So this is the first thing to note about this edict. The second thing is this, that this new edict doesn't actually say that the Jews have the permission to launch an attack on their enemies, but rather this decree is mainly defensive. It is about resisting their enemies. But even with that, it's actually not so simple. Now, verse 13 tells us that the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. In Hebrew, the, ver- the verb that is translated to take vengeance is never taken as a simple defense, but rather, as one scholar puts it, what we have with the verb is that it designates a punitive action and it presupposes a prior wrong. And the wrong that is committed here is the quest to destroy the Jews. And just like Haman himself, who sought to destroy the Jews, those who seek to act according to this edict, they themselves will face the same fate as Haman. Those who seek to harm the seed of Abraham shall face the curse of judgment against them. And we'll see this played out in chapter 9. Still, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, how does this apply to us as Christians in our modern day? Surely this doesn't mean that we can just go ahead and take revenge on our perpetrators, right? Well, we need to read this account in the context of a holy war in the Old Testament. Now, what is a holy war? Now, Ian Duguid explains it this way in his commentary. In holy war, the Israelites acted as the agents of God's righteous judgment against sinners. This was how God's justice was executed, particularly during the Mosaic era of salvation history. And since it was specific to that era, this means that this same kind of holy war doesn't actually apply in our context. And this is why Jesus actually rebuked his disciples, James and John, when they tried to call down fire from heaven to destroy the village that rejected them. Now, as Christians living on this side of the cross, we are living in a different era in redemptive history. We are living in the era of grace where we are not called to bear arms in the name of our faith. But this doesn't mean that the concept of holy war is totally abandoned. In fact, this mosaic form actually anticipates or looks forward to the holy war at the end of history. 
that there will be a final day of judgment when wrongs will be made right. And on the one hand, this is a solemn warning for those who don't believe. God's edict of death still holds against rebellious and unrepentant sinners. God is patient, but His patience will not last forever. There's an expiry date to His forbearance, and it is fast approaching. But on the other hand, there is ultimate safety for those who believe in Jesus because we are secure in Him. We are ultimately secure in Christ. And yet, there are still some ways to go before we see Jesus face to face. And until that happens, we continue to engage in warfare, but it is a spiritual warfare with spiritual weaponry. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And God has given us a spiritual armor so that we may resist against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's not easy. I'm telling you, it's really not easy. But God has given us, He has empowered us with the Holy Spirit so that we may withstand whatever comes our way. So let this be an encouragement to each one of us who have trusted in Jesus as we face all of the trials of life knowing that we are not doing this by ourselves, that we are not doing this alone. So this is the situation that we have. And finally, after hearing the proclamation of this new edict, the Jewish people had good reasons to celebrate and to rejoice. And this brings us to our last point on rejoicing. In verses 15 to 17, we are given a picture of how this decree was received by the people. Mordecai has finally received the full commendation for what he did in saving the king's life. He was dressed in royal robes as he left the king's presence and went into the city of Susa. He was promoted to be the king's right-hand man in a position of glory. And again, here we find another contrast with what happened previously. You see, when the first decree was issued, this led Mordecai to be clothed in sackcloth and ashes. And at that point of time, he was unable to approach the king. But here, with this new decree, Mordecai was clothed in majestic splendor as he emerged from the presence of the king. And this complete change in, in status for Mordecai is actually reflected in the Jewish people as well. There was a widespread reversal of the situation and of the mood of God's people. Now look with me at verses 16 to 17. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Do you see what's happening here? The Jews are rejoicing over this new decree which gave them hope. And you can just imagine the celebration all around as their fates were reversed. 
And this was totally different from how they reacted to Haman's edict. Back in Esther chapter 3, verse 15, it tells us that Haman's decree actually led to widespread confusion. But here in chapter 8, Mordecai's decree brought joy to the people. So instead of fasting with a very gloomy spirit, God's people are now feasting with joyful hearts. And indeed, what we have here is a complete reversal of the situation. And in addition, there's something else that's happening here. Not only do we see the Jews rejoicing, but we also see that there were non-Jews who decided to become Jews. We, we are told in verse 17 that fear of the Jews had fallen upon these people, and this led them to convert to the cause of the Jews. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean a simple association with the Jews by, oh, hey, these are my friends? Is that the kind of association? Or is there like a wholesale adoption of the Jewish lifestyle and practices? I think it's very difficult to say with certainty. And perhaps this allegiance was a mere political one with very mixed motives rather than a simple religious one. But despite all of these things, there's one thing that is very clear. Since these people have decided to align themselves with the Jews, this means that the decree to destroy the Jews is going to include them as well. On the very day that Haman's decree is implemented, they too are going to be objects of this execution. And yet it is actually difficult to not see God's hand in preserving his people. And he will surely preserve and bring them to a certain victory. And there was a firm conviction all around that God will bring judgment upon his people and protect, uh, judgment upon his enemies and protect his people. The Jews believed that, God, that the promise that God made to Abraham will come to pass. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And it's important to remember that this new edict was issued on the third month. And the events that transpire in, the, in chapter 9, the next chapter, only occurred on the 12th month, which, which is nine months later. So the citizens of the empire were actually given nine months to respond to this good news or to this gospel proclamation before the day of judgment. And those who have decided to declare war on the Jews, they will experience the curse of judgment. But those who join the Jews will experience blessings and they will take part in their joy. And brothers and sisters, this is the very nature of the gospel message. It is a message of joy. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, we see an angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds out in the field to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what the angel said in Luke chapter 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, as we find ourselves approaching Christmas in a few weeks' time, this is the question that we need to ask ourselves. Do we actually rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, in our broader culture, you know, when people say that they are looking forward to Christmas, 
uh, it's not quite the same kind of anticipation that we find in the Bible. When the festive season approaches, you know, when you see all of the Christmas decorations put up along the streets of Orchard Road or even outside of this worship hall here at Treehouse, what we see is that people look forward to things like family gatherings and they look forward to the exchange of gifts with their loved ones. And for this reason, this is why it is the most wonderful time of the year for them. But this way of celebrating is often removed from its biblical roots that tells us the story of how God came down to dwell among us. And as such, this so-called joy that is experienced is actually a superficial kind of joy. And it is very, very different from a Christian view of joy. Now, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this about the uniqueness of Christian joy in his book on spiritual depression. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. And this is the remarkable thing about gospel joy, isn't it? You know, sometimes in the midst of our suffering, you know, we try to tell ourselves that, oh, everything is fine, no worries, everything is going to be okay. But when we look around, I think it's actually quite obvious that everything isn't fine. Everything is not okay. And the difference that the gospel makes in all of, you know, all of the messes is this, that despite all of the frustration and all of the sadness and all of the struggles with pain and diseases, all of the struggles with COVID lockdowns and all of these losses, that leave me entirely out of options. Even with all of this, I can still experience the indescribable and abundant joy of knowing Jesus. And brothers and sisters, is this the kind of joy that you have? If not, cry out to God and ask for Him earnestly. Earnestly ask God for this joy. Because perhaps the reason why you don't have it is because you have not asked for it. Ask and you shall receive, and your joy will be complete. So brothers and sisters, this is the pattern that we observe in this chapter of Esther, that though things were still looking very grim at the start of this chapter, but by the end of it, we see that there is cause for rejoicing, that there is hope for those who are identified with God's people and truly it ain't over till it's over. And yet, as we look at ourselves, even as Christians, we recognize that we are still sinners. And if the wages of sin against a holy and just God is death, then how can we possibly stand before Him? Who can actually redeem us from this edict of death that stands between us and the heavenly courts? And what we need is a greater Esther who will lay aside his honor and his dignity to plead our case before God the King. And we have such a mediator in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, he took on servant form and he went through the deepest of humiliations when he suffered for our sakes, even to the point of death on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 
verse 5 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities so that sinners like you and I may see the light of day. It was the greatest of all reversals in human history. And yet the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. The story wasn't over when Jesus' body was buried and when the women came and mourned for Jesus. It wasn't over until Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared in glory and ascended to the right hand of his father. That was when his work was complete. So death couldn't keep our Savior down. And because as Christians, we are united to Jesus, we have the confidence that death will not triumph over us. And even right now, Jesus is praying for you and he is pleading to our Father saying, look at this child of God. This is who I died for. And when we look at the Jews, the Jews rejoiced in the fact that they were preserved from physical harm. And as believers in Christ, we can rejoice because we have been preserved from eternal harm, which is far, far better. God's edict of eternal life is one that can never be revoked nor taken from us. And so as we come to a close, let me leave you with this question. Are you truly trusting in what Christ has done in our place? If your answer is no, then let me urge you to count the cost and to turn to Christ who offers the only path to salvation. And if your answer is a resounding yes, then let us celebrate. Let us celebrate our deliverance with joy. And let us look forward to the day when we shall sing with all of the saints with the words of Revelation 7 verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift that you have given to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that you have offered in the gospel so that we may not perish. And Father, we pray as unworthy recipients of your grace that we will not allow our salvation to be a source of pride for us. We pray that we will continue to grieve over our sins, but we also pray that we will grow in joy, a joy that seeks no other but the face of Christ. And we pray for this joy, we wait for it, and we long for it. And Father, would you give us more than we can hold, desire, or think of. And so Father, we humbly come before you and we ask of these things, knowing that you will listen to your children. And so we thank you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.